Live from Ferngully, this is Drill Trains of Thought. Okay, hello, Timothy. Hola. It's a humid... And it's very humid. Yes, it's almost as wet as it was back in Indiana. I know, and that's saying something. But I'm bunching. But it's kind of it's kind of nice here. I mean, it is very it's nice, beautiful, and I, we're, we're kind of a little smaller than we were nor- normally. I mean, yeah, I I would be a little. I mean, I'd be a little nervous about being in the rain jungle. I mean, you've been in the rain jungle before. Yeah. I've never never have. Um, rain jungle, rainforest. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna just let it fly. See how long it went. Uh, but I, I would, so I would feel nervous in rainforest under normal circumstances, but being this small, I'm afraid something's just going to pop nice, around the corner that, and eat me. She went off to get us some food, but we had that nice fairy running around. Yeah, I don't know. She didn't seem too familiar with humans, well, and at least not, not really good no, impressions of us anyway. No, well, we'll, we'll, we'll try to change her mind. I, I mean, I suppose that's to be... I mean, what, what's the worst that can happen? Uh... Well, I'm not going to think about that. Okay, good. That, that's good. <laughs> I mean, I'm not surprised fairies, not, you know, fairies are kind of, you know, flighty. Drunk on shh. Wow. Anyway, how have you been, Nick? I've <laughs> been pretty good. How about you? Uh, okay. I guess I can't complain. Um, <laughs> wet in Indiana, wet here. Yeah, wet, you know, you know. It, it's, I'm all wet. Yep. Hey, it's so. better than last time, I guess. Yes. Yeah. At least, uh, we can, uh, there's good fruit and food here so that's true that's true and just don't you know don't drink the water no uh, <laughs> <laughs> i'll take your word on that i think it's sprayed that's awesome okay um i said water oh yeah um, i told you we're someplace else no, no, it's nice <laughs> um so how about we start first with a little bit of uh listener feedback listener feedback We uh, got some comments, or a comment, or I guess multiple comments from the same person uh, <laughs> <laughs> last episode. Um, Nathan Marchand, who we name-dropped in when we were talking about uh, Tim's not taste for Pacific Rim. Did, <laughs> did, did we actually say that he might have something to say about it? I think we I think we probably did. Okay. Yeah. Well, and he did, of course, because <laughs> Nate is very a big... Uh, he's, a, he's a big... He like giant monsters. Yeah, monsters and, and robots and all that kind of stuff. But particularly monsters. He's yeah. a big Godzilla fan. We talked about that before on here. His uh, explanation for where that taste comes from is... Well, for Pacific Rim, I, I, which actually, it really does have... A, that movie does have a lot going for it besides just monsters. And I agree with him. He pointed out that it has some very cool cinematography. Uh, the color, There's a lot more colors in that than a lot of blockbusters nowadays, honestly. Yeah. Which I appreciate. Did you see the new that. Godzilla yet? I, I have not seen the new Godzilla yet. I don't think that's very colorful. Okay. I mean, just from my previews and stuff. I could be wrong. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't. I don't think it could be nearly as colorful as Pacific Rim because they just they do a lot with with that in there. Um, but he also, I mean, he he really likes the design for the creatures yeah. and the robots and that they have uh, some recognizable traits, uh, but also seem alien. That you know, obviously the creatures see, themselves. And see, Nathan's a world builder as a. More of a world builder than I am, I think, when it comes to world, and he approaches movies somewhat in the same way. Yeah, I could see that, and and I admitted when we we were talking in the comments that I admitted I've I've grown to appreciate creature design a bit more from just from my fascination with all things Jim Henson. Yeah, and especially like if you ever get a chance to watch 
Um, I think it's on iTunes. Unfortunately, it sounds like they're not going to get another season. But when they did the the Jim Henson's Creature Shop Challenge, oh yeah, on I've Sci-Fi, seen a few, yeah, I've seen a few of those. That was a fascinating. It was by far my favorite reality show I've ever seen, just because it was the format wasn't anything unusual for a reality show. You know, your your typical uh, group of contestants that are they may have to make us do a specific challenge each week, but just the the process you get to see them go through. It, the challenges they they had to do were all very interesting. Yeah, and the imagination and the creativity and what they had to do to get to each point it was it was a fascinating show. Even for someone like me, that alien stuff is not what first draws me into yeah. uh, into the fantasy and science fiction. And then Nate also points out that in Pacific Rim, uh, the heroes are always kind of on the brink of defeat and survive by the skin of their teeth. So, you know, there are a lot of elements yeah. in, in these kind of movies that, uh, you know, I, I can identify with the whole combination. Again, usually the the big monsters in themselves aren't going to do it for me, but yeah. I can see why they do it for some people. Um, though, just as a, a sidetrack with uh, mentioning Pacific Rim. You just told me that recently we just passed the the day that was the first episode of Evangelion, if it was real life. Oh, yes. Yeah, the first episode took place, like, earlier this week. Yeah. Which is, thank goodness that didn't happen. We don't have Bloody Oceans <laughs> or the first, or first impact. Was, first, or, sec- yeah. or second impact? Which one was it? I think it might have been second, because, anyways, that was the first or second angel landed in Antarctica. And, yeah. So, if you don't know what we're talking about, Thank goodness it didn't happen in real life. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. All right. I, when, do you remember when First Impact? This is we'll get yeah. we'll get away from Evangelion in a second here. But <laughs> when did First Impact happen, or when was that supposed to happen in the context of the series? Was it a, was it like ten years before the series begins? It was like a. It was around like ninety nine, like one of those like two thousand ninety nine, wasn't it? Sort okay, of it could be. Well, because. Well, what, the, what's, I, what's her name was a kid at the, at yeah, the time. You know what? Actually, I, I might completely be misremembering, but my one, I wonder if the kids that were could run the things weren't like born right around that time. Oh, yeah, that could be. Yeah, my, my, could. my knowledge is fuzzy now, but it's possible. Evangelion is weird. Um, if, if you decide to watch it, be, be warned. It's, 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 it's weird. very impressionive. I mean, it's lasted a long, it was the first anime really ever watched, and it stuck with me a long time. I mean, I don't think I've rewatched it for, for a good 15 reason. Years. <laughs> <laughs> Part, everyone's one like, I really should, maybe I should, but I haven't quite worked up. Well, I mean, you, you got to see the, the movie remake. Which is nice. Yeah. The, those are pretty cool. Yeah. Really yeah. Nice. And not quite so hopeless. Yes. All right. But, I guess moving on. Yeah, so go check out that uh, conversation in the comments at derailedtrainsofthought.blogspot.com. Yeah, leave us comments. We like comments. Yeah, it's good to have a conversation. And we'll, we'll name drop you. So. Yeah, I, I I know I saw another listener just the other night at a concert, and she was like, yeah, you guys need to podcast more. And I would say to her, you need to comment more. <laughs> you heard that. Let your presence be known. Well, then we'll move on from listener feedback to story school. Yeah, story school, that one thing we do every single yes. time. I was, I was going to lead up to it really triumphantly, and my word stopped, so I just like, story school. <laughs> All right, and what are we talking mic. about tonight, Dave? Tonight, we are talking about... Um, or when, today, or whenever you happen to be listening to this. Well, it's hard to tell. The trees are covering the... Yeah. Anyways. Um, <laughs> we're talking about um, 
How we put them? I'm trying to think. I I want to say message movies, but it's not just movies. It's when a story comes with some sort of message, a deep is, message. Uh, you know, an agenda sometimes. Yeah, agenda. And yeah, there, there's a whole there's a whole range of it, but sometimes it comes with a deep agenda, and sometimes not as much. Right. Um, well, I mean, all artists are trying to say something. And with I guess their story, that was the first thing I wanted to do. I wanted to mention is that all art has a message, or it wouldn't really be called art. Yeah. But there does seem to be this line that people cross that suddenly people say, oh, now it's heavy-handed, or now it's a message movie, or now it's uh, something beyond just art. Mm. It's trying to preach something. You're trying to, yeah, preachiness. And, it's, and I'm not completely sure that sort of uh, message art is always bad. Because I was thinking about this, you know, that line, obviously, you cross and people complain. Mm. But before that line, I would get most of the great works of art are saying something pretty directly. I mean... Uh, yeah, I mean, if you're talking about like say Dante, I mean, you talk about like a lot, a lot of what people call literature. Mm-hmm. You know, talking, you know, Les Mis. I mean, it's very true. Top, yeah, or, or very you know, anything Dickens, or I mean, even you know, even you get to more modern stuff, and it's like you know, The Stranger by Camus, or you know, so being having a message is, does not mean it's not artful. Yes, even if the message is the purpose for the book. Hmm. Interesting. So we've got to figure out where that line is that turns it from not being artful. Is it just bad artistry or is there something else? Well, let's let's recap a little bit on what we've said before about Christian fiction. Okay. That's that's labeled as such. Yeah. Um because if you've been listening to the podcast, we've for you know, since if you've listened to a lot, we've we've dealt with this a couple times. Yeah. But in case you haven't, and this is a good recap just for all of us, you know, Nick and I, our personal opinion is we don't necessarily we don't try to preach through our stories, you know, as much as possible, but we do write and we, we have, we do create out of our belief system. Yeah, that the world we believe works a certain way and our fiction world will reflect. Will reflect that. Yeah. And that, yeah, it'll just naturally come out in through the storytelling. Yeah. But we've also talked about, and I've, I mean, I've addressed that I do think that there is a place yes. um, for some Christian fiction that is overt. The Christianity is kind of a big deal, especially when it comes to kid stuff. Yes. Because um, you want to, you know, for kids, you kind of have to spell out the the message, yeah. the lesson. Otherwise, they just won't get it. The question is, at, at what point, I think, do, for when you're writing for adults or for, yeah. for even for even for teens, you know, when does it become- cross... Yeah, when does it burden down the story? Yeah, too yeah. Much? When does it become bad art? Yeah, largely. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, somebody can be very extravagant. I mean, I was just just now I was thinking being overt. I mean, C.S. Lewis in many of his stuff is very overt. I mean, Great Divorce. Mm, I yeah. mean, you don't get much more you know on the nose than some of that stuff. Or, and that's considered great art. Well, I mean, most people would read, even they disagreed with it, would not say it was not. Well done. Yeah. Well, Great Divorce is an unusual book because it's not quite really fiction. That's true. It is, it's more it's, almost almost allegory. Yeah. It's not. I mean, and it's not quite. Al- it's not like Pilgrim's no, Progress, no. where everything represents something. Yeah. Um. That's true. It is not quite in that same category. Yeah. Of. Yeah. And I wonder. You know, well, I guess. Okay. Here's here's one line. I don't think this is the main line we're going to be talking about, but I think sometimes people call foul on too preachy or you've burdened down the story mm-hmm. if they don't agree with what's being preached. Oh, that's, that's a possibility. I think, the line, I think the line moves depending whether you agree with it or disagree with it. I can see that because there are a lot of Christians that will not 
view Christian movies or Christian media stories as being preachy because yeah. they agree with all. They, they of it. think lightly. Yeah, that's how it works. Yeah, or pretty much. That's how people should you know or should work. You uh-huh. know? And, and then and then like the some of the artists who are actually Christian be like, no, that that came off really kind of forced or yeah. you know. And I, and I think it worked with all kinds of different worldviews. I know you know some you know I know people are highly politicized. Yeah. And if they watch a movie that they can tell the other views there it just turns them off even though oh, it the, might not matter to the movie that much the, there's a handful of movies like that in the oscar that get nominated for oscars every year yeah. that anyone outside of hollywood can see wow you guys really are pushing your own agenda in this movie and then all the insiders inside hollywood are like yeah this is this is great artistry well it's like i've never i've, I've read um the fountainhead but i've never read atlas shrugged by Anne Rand. Okay. And Ayn Rand, if you don't know, is very, you know, conservative. Yeah, I'm glad you brought her up because I've never read her myself, but that is one that gets brought up a lot in, in this sort of because conservatives yeah. love her. Conservative thing, like her books are genius. Uh-huh. And but you have, have has Zach read any? of He's stuff? read both of them. Okay. Does he yeah. like him? Like yeah. Him? Okay. Yeah. The, now the thing is, I've heard people complain about Ayn Rand that she's very didactic and very. Uh, like I guess in Atlas Shrugged, the last seventy pages is basically a speech that this guy's giving. Oh, okay. You know, uh-huh. but I think the problem is a lot of people go into Rena and Rand to see basically the battle of ideas. That's the point of reading. I mean, it's not quite the level of Great Divorce, mm-hmm. you know, but it's it's more like let's see how these ideas are personified in this sort of world, as opposed to I want a realistic version of the world. Does okay. that make sense? Yeah. I don't know. Again, Fountainhead, I thought I loved. I love Fountainhead a lot because it was. It felt very true to me. And I think when something rings true, you don't call foul. Okay, well, here's... Uh, well, here's a... Qu- <laughs> yes. Here's a thought or maybe a question. What about, like, say, Orwell, 1984, yeah. or um, Brave New, New World. World? Yeah, you know, those the two famous dystopia books. Yeah. Those are obviously, you know, they're kind of, I mean, they're fiction. Yeah. They obviously have a very specific point that they're trying to get across. But I don't know that anyone would accuse them of, is it, they're they're almost party neutral, what they're trying to say with it. And maybe that's the difference. Whereas, where when you, because I think with, if your movie is trying to say something that's sort of considered a universal truth. Yeah. Like, you know. Brotherhood of Man. No one's going to, you know, downplay that. But when you're trying to make your story about an issue that people disagree on, maybe that's kind of the, like, I don't know about this. That that might be. And I wonder, too, whether it's partly one stage of it is, if you're writing an idea novel, writing a message movie, that it's not presented as anything else. From straight up, you're like, this this book is going to be about this subject. Mm, mm -hmm. As opposed to saying, we're going to do a nice, happy, you know, cartoon and then we're going to hit you with a head that, you know, it's called Happy Feet and it's about penguins, but it's really about global warming. Yes. You know, yes. I think the bait and switch is part of the thing that m- makes people call foul. Yes. As opposed to you call it, you know, burning feet. And then you go. <laughs> yes. I, I totally agree. Like that, that brings to mind a movie I saw once called The Ghost Rider, which is directed by Roman Polanski. He's, okay. a, he's very popular you know, director in Hollywood, and it's got Ewan McGregor in it. Okay. I think my mom had got it through Netflix one time, and I've ranted about it somewhere, but I don't remember <laughs> if it was on this podcast or not, so I'll bring it up. But it was actually a really 
starting off, it was a really interesting political thriller. Yeah. And, uh, and Ewan McGregor is like this reporter, and he's like, I think uh, Pierce Bronson is a former president and all this stuff, and he's doing some investigation. Anyway, and it's it's the first two-thirds of it is really interesting, suspenseful, good filmmaking stuff. Yeah. Then, at some point, you realize that this whole conspiracy is basically a thinly disguised attack on the Bush administration okay. and the whole he started Iraq for like political yeah. reasons and all you know that kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean it's very like when the veneer is stripped away and you realize that's what it is like I lost all interest yeah. in the movie and I actually got really mad because I felt like I had been suckered into the thing. Yeah. You know, you're just watching this fun story and all of a sudden it becomes a political tirade. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that's no fun. And I think maybe the other thing with 1984 and uh, Brave New World is that even though they were probably written in response to something very current, their message continues to be universal. Like, it, mm-hmm. it doesn't feel like it's attacking one particular thing. Like, it's just attacking the Bush administration or the Obama administration. Yeah. It's attacking a mindset. Mm. You know, it's attacking a... A bad habit, almost. Yeah, yeah. yeah like, and, and I think good art can make you feel like this is a universal truth, not just my personal truth. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's part of it, too. You know, you might not agree, read nineteen four. the world actually like that, but you would agree that a world that did that is not right. Yeah. You know, because some people say, oh, this is where we're going. Other people like, no, we're not. You know, they have political arguments and stuff, uh-huh. but that doesn't take away from the fact that the book is saying true things about conformity or nonconformity. Sure. And I think there may be cases, too, where a viewer or reader may still not like the book because they would still that whatever the the artist is trying to communicate through through that story doesn't resonate with them that's mm-hmm. still possible but if it's done artistically well they won't necessarily think of it as a preachy sort of thing they, they may not even realize that's what they didn't like about the movie you know yeah and i wonder i mean do you think with good enough art you could make anything you want to say good i mean like even like current political satire or whatever or or is there some sort of distance you need for it to not feel messagey i don't know i mean that's you know and some of this is kind of subjective yeah yeah certainly Um, i mean i know for a long time i don't know if film schools still do this i didn't see it when i was in film school but for a long time a lot of film students they still studied birth of a nation even though it's considered a terribly racist uh piece of filmmaking it still get, got studied for a long, long time because it was so effective at what it was trying, trying to, to do. do. And, you know, people hate the movie, but they also realize, you know, kind of respect. I don't know if respect is the right word. Yeah. But they realize this was made very sincerely in a sense. He's doing a lot of innovative things with his filmmaking. I mean, this is a silent film. Yeah. It's basically sort of a silent documentary, but yeah. it's it's largely propaganda. Yeah. And... um Wait, am I thinking of the right one? Birth of the Nation is that the the Hitler one? Or I don't is, remember. That might be the Hitler one. What's the? There's another one that's more about the. Uh, that's about the South, and and it's about like racism in America. Oh, but it's very you know KKK. I can't think of what the name of. Now I'm gonna have to look it up. But, well, meanwhile, I'll talk. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and I think oh, actually related to the art thing, I remember my notes I wrote, and sometimes I think it's if the truth the truth has to be presented. With complexity, I think I think that's the knock people sometimes have with Christian movies is that it's too simple. Oh, yeah, you know, it's everything's everything very stark, gets, black and white. Yeah, it's all boiled down to this. And I think you know, even not, if it wasn't, nice and again, that's part of art, but that's not necessarily not even the technique. Sometimes just the 
having it feel like real life, or at least a version of real life that, you know, not necessarily has to be realis- realism, but mm-hmm. that at least people act like people act that you've seen, that you know. I mean, that's like in Anne Rand, there's characters, they're just despicable, or this person that you're the... And they're obviously in some in ways symbols for certain types of things, but you're like, I know people who are kind of like that. Yeah. You know, you can point and say, you know, and if you watch the movie, you're like, I don't know anyone who would act like that. Mm. Then something goes, you know, and I think sometimes you have villains, you're like, no, no, no one's no one's that ridiculous yeah. over you know. No one's that evil, or no one's that careless. You like know. in like in Avatar, the military figures that yeah, yeah, we're just gonna kill them all, and you're like yeah, you're a cardboard. Yeah, exactly. Stereotype. I mean, now you would add, you know if you would add just a smidge of like reason they would do it, it wouldn't have taken much, and you could have done the same meaning uh-huh. and had a lot more people buy into it. Yeah, and so I think so, there's a certain amount of complexity, a certain amount of reflection of. Oh, yeah. I mean, because you got to make it, if you're trying to convince someone of an idea, you got to make them feel like it fits in the real world. Yeah. <laughs> and I think maybe that's what falls apart a lot of times. And the, th- and the problem with the Christian art sometimes is that there are things that happen very drastically to mm-hmm. people. Yeah. But if you don't know a person like that, you're like that. And that is the limitation of of fiction and telling yeah, Christian be- truth in a lot of sense. I mean, because it's a very, because, you know, to strip away the fiction, in real life, it's a very personal and it can be a very, unique thing that doesn't translate well to sometimes to the sort of universal universal palette you use in fiction mm-hmm. unlike you know there's there's that saying truth is stranger than fiction yeah christian testimonies you know, the word of our testimony yeah is strange you know some of the stories that you, you like actual if you, if you actual book you'd be like no way and then you yeah. hear person say you're like Wow. Yeah. Well, this guy was like persecuting Christians and then he just happened to see Jesus. Come on. Yeah, exactly. That's the Deus Ex Machina. Uh, <laughs> yes. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, that's the problem. I mean, when you have a, not God out of the machine, but God out of the heaven, yeah. come and mess up your drama, you know? Right. It, art, art, art people say foul and we say life. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> you know, yeah. And you really can't, you really can't do that in uh Fictional context as well. Not without setup, not without mm-hmm. other things. Now, and that's an interesting, well, this may be a, a tangent, but this is Daryl Trains of yeah, Thought. Go for it. But I mean, when we did one of our co author projects, we had that one discussion about the one the one story that you finished. Oh, yes. Where in that one, basically, God does kind of take a role in the effects. But in that one, we sort of felt like the villain had been challenging God so directly. The yeah. entire time. Well, and, there, and there was a spiritual beginning, too, to the whole story. That's true, story. yeah. I mean, it was a superhero thing where the superhero basically yeah. got her powers from... from spirit, animal spirits, but I'm not sure they were... I don't think they claimed, like, in the Native American... I can't remember, but it seemed no. to have been within a theistic context. Yeah, within a theistic context. M- very much like Tolkien using, like, bas- the idea of yeah. guard- guardian angels yeah. basically kind of governing the earth sort of thing. Yeah, and it just seemed like it was a necessary and... and Right step, mm-hmm. as opposed to like out of the blue, You're like suddenly, ha ha! Insert God. Yeah, you know? <laughs> I mean, and it works for you. Uh, I think we probably joked on here before, and you know, Anna Jones, it's do six arc. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> but, but it, they've set that up. They set it up time. from the yeah. yeah that the arc was really powerful, and yeah. you know, you better take it seriously. And and even before the end, like you know, when they're digging up the the cave, and suddenly there's a big thunderstorm outside, yeah. and like, man, should they really be doing this? <laughs> So anyway, that's slightly sidetracked, but I think that's a good a good sidetrack. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so let's talk about something that maybe doesn't 
Um, actually, just to go back real quick, Birth of a Nation is the one I was thinking about. Okay. And that's the, I don't the remember. The Southern one. The Southern one. I don't remember. There's also a, a, a Nazi propaganda film that I think yeah. was almost, but I can't think of the name of it. You could look it up. But to kind of look at a recent movie that yeah. sort of cuts against this, you know, this theory we have that it's, you know, if you're going for a universal thing, then yeah. it's less likely to be accused as preachy. Tomorrowland recently came yes, out. Yeah, I, I had that on my list. Uh, which uh, got a lot of uh, criticism from. I mean, it was very. It was interesting. The critics were pretty split. Yeah, on this like one. this is great, or this is this is way too. Pre- the the message you're trying to do is bogging down. There's this big. Yeah. There's a speech that when the a bad guy gives toward the end that just kind of feels kind of weighty and and um. But in that one, it's it's very kind of like human optimism. Like we can make this world yeah. a better place. You know, which is something we should all be able to agree with. Yeah. Um, now there are worldviews in the movie. I probably, I probably wouldn't agree with, but that's yeah. not that's not really the main thrust of it. I don't think. And I wonder the thing with Tomorrowland. I sometimes I think there's probably two angles you can go on that one. Partly, I think it's that do you agree with it or not? And I think there's sort of people who just they're just more pessimistic, and it just doesn't feel right to uh-huh. be that cheery. I don't know if that there's something. I thought it was interesting that they they talk about how. They try to warn people about the the Earth yeah. being in danger, and then we kind of turned the apocalypse into this entertainment genre, yeah. and which should be rang really true. <laughs> yeah, it did ring really true. But I mean, I'm sure there are some people who are like, but I like that stuff. Don't be picking on oh, my post apocalyptic. Well, yeah, you know. and you know, we and we write a post apocalyptic series ourselves. Well, I read an interview with David Lindelof. He's like. His other show, Leftovers, is basically a post-apocalyptic world. Right. I mean, it's it's not like it's trying to be anti, but it's an interesting trend to explore. Well, not only that, but the trend's more of a symptom than the cause. Yes. The, I mean, in, and I think, like, I liked it, my brother liked it, and I think partly because when the bad guy was doing that speech, we're like, that's exactly, that's how people work. Yeah. You know, that we do tend to feed on bad things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just kind of say, give up. And to us, that that rang true enough that we didn't feel like it was preaching. We felt like it was interesting. Mm-hmm. Other people might have just thought it was too much or like maybe they felt accused. Maybe they felt like, you know, yeah. you're, you're overstating it. And I mean, and the movie, granted, was very... Humanistic in a lot it of was, ways. It was humanistic and it, it was very black and white. It was, you yeah. know, I suppose we mentioned complexity. It was probably more... Just, you know, no sh- there were not many shades of gray in it. That's true. Which always nowadays makes people touchy. Yeah. Well, I think one thing that that did wind up hurting the movie in some ways is that this was more of a children's movie than I think it was marketed. Oh, that might, yeah. Because, like, I mean, really, you know, in, in, in that sense, it being simplistic is not a bad thing because yeah. kids' movie. Not to say that kids' movies should be dumb, but, I mean, they and don't I don't be, think it was a dumb nuanced. movie. They don't need to be... Uh, Gray. Yeah, they don't need as many different shades of gray in it yeah. as, you know, an adult movie often tries to get. And the thing is, I'm not sure for the sake of the movie itself, for the theme of the movie, gray wouldn't work. I mean, yeah. the whole, I mean, what that's what oppressed me about the movie. I'm kind of in Taking Tales mode now. But um, <laughs> is, it was filmed with this exuberance. Yeah. I mean, the the action scenes and the dialogue. It was fun. It was just fun. It was like an old 80s movie. It was an old adventure kids movie. Of, yeah. Like, you know, where, the, again, the adults have failed us, and so the kids kind of have almost, to go off on their own. in that genre, you need the monologuing bad guy. Yeah. In some ways. In some, yeah. 
No, I, I felt it worked in the context of the thing, but it is, it's interesting that we're, have kind of come to a, such a point where, yeah, if this was a movie for adults, you try to say your point too overtly, then you get accused of being preachy. Yeah, which, which the thing is, it was a relatively new thing, I think, because I think movies have been pretty on the nose for in, in the past. Yeah. And there's plenty of new movies that are. I mean, any Pixar movie is pretty upfront up about what it's actually trying to say. And no one claims, up is preachy, you know. They're like, up is great because it's true. Yeah, I can. Yeah, so it's it's an interesting world in terms of a little hypersensitivity but, on the. And, and I mean, everyone's super hypersensitive with anything that oh, might yeah. offend them, yeah, or, or seem slightly different than what they've been, than what they're used to, than what they're used to. And I, you know, and, and that, I get that. I mean, I get that. You know, I I get that. Everyone's while like, oh, some movie that pushes an agenda that or has just a point of view that's I think is. Yeah. Wrong. I well, get a little antsy, you know. But. Well, and, and like Brad Bird pointed out on Twitter, you know, optimism is pretty, you know, subversive right now. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean, let's let's be honest, you know, this is a very cynical society we live in. So that's one reason why this movie just well, felt I, so different. I remember when Wally came out, you know, some of the more conservative people were, didn't much like it because they had the whole like, we destroy the world and, you know, natural, you know, because they're always kind of touchy about any movie that has a lot of ecological yeah. disaster. But that movie didn't feel, it felt to me more like a true warning of, look, if we're going to live big and large, it's this is kind of the consequence. Uh -huh. As opposed to saying. Yeah, for me, it was more of an, it didn't bother me because that was like the setting. It didn't feel yeah. preaching to me and it's like. This is a big what if. What if the Earth was covered in trash and there's just well, one I robot think, left? I think because it's such a you know it's such a topical thing, global warming and stuff like that. Yeah, and that there's a there's a certain section of the population that's hypersensitive to those things. And it could be, but I think they need to get over at this point well, because yeah. well because and this is why I say that I I kind of feel like pop culture has sort of learned its lesson about being well. I don't know. You still had Happy Feet, which is apparently like overt, and it's. Yeah. But I mean, you. you it's gotten better, certainly. I mean, they're you know we're Fern Gully. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of the poster child for <laughs> a, a movie where everyone knows it's being like. Yeah. It's sappily, you know, sickeningly preachy, well, I and everyone knows. Complain about the 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 new mup the 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 reboot Muppet movie. Okay. The, you know they complain about Tex Richmond and like seriously, guys. <laughs> it's yeah. Like, this is the Muppets always have ridiculous villains. You know, their oversensitivity is something that affects both sides oh, of the political certainly. spectrum. Oh, certainly. No, I, I completely Conservatives agree and liberals. Yeah. I mean, it's, it just depends what issue ridiculous. you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, and it's it's really quite ridiculous. And so some of it, I don't know the artist's fault. Sometimes I think you can do a perfectly fine in-your-context thing, and it still comes off as preachy. Yeah, that's a, entirely possible. Because you just talk about issues. Yeah. Because art talks about issues. Uh-huh. I don't know if there's a, a good uh, solution to it because you're kind of like in trouble if you do, in trouble if you don't almost. Yeah. People, you know, if you make it with no message at all, people are like, this is mind numbing. You should say something important with your life. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I do think things to help make it better, like we've said, is a certain amount of complexity. You know, at least that people act like real people act or it rings true. Yes, right. You know, to, you know, even Tomorrowland, if it's a little more white and dark as opposed to gray, for the people that work for it, it rang true. Mm-hmm. And we've always said, know your story, what kind of story you're, you're trying to and, tell. If you're doing an idea movie or message book, do it. And don't pretend to do it. Yeah. I mean, like, half do it. Well, and— Like, I, 
Okay, State of Fear, I think I mentioned on here by Michael Crichton. Yeah, I was going to say Michael Crichton. It's, it, yeah. it's not really a book. I mean, it's the story is basically a, a way to loosely connect research he's done on global warming. I mean, right. and put things in. I'm sure some people thought it was horrible because there's eco-terrorist stuff. But it's sort of a what if with lots of science. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like a mockumentary you know, I mean, I'm, that's not quite right, but it's like a half documentary and half like, let's give a cool plot line so that it doesn't sound like a documentary. Uh-huh. Or like Next, which was, I think, the last thing I read of his, which was more like lots of half stories of how genetics go horribly wrong than the actual. There's like almost all these random genetical things that could happen in real life kind of vaguely tied together in a loose plot line. But it was really, you don't go reading it because you want to. The suspense. Like a Tom Clancy book. Okay. Uh-huh. You go reading it because it's scary to learn what scientists might do in 10 years. With In science fiction, some of it's really been a lot of science fiction is idea-based. Is mm-hmm. okay, I'm going to take what's going on right now. I'm going to jump it 10 years in the future. The, and then I'm going to write it. And hard science fiction tends to be a little light on character. Uh-huh. And that's really true. heavy on facts and what-ifs and people playing parts in order to do, explain things. Mm-hmm. It's about all about extrapolating that idea and, 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 and putting, kind of showing it. And, and the, yeah, and you just you read hard science fiction differently than you read adventure, or you should. Yeah. And you should read, you know, a, a, a kid's movie differently than you would read a Oscar movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. I mean, there's still, you know, still sometimes like, yeah, you're, that doesn't flow naturally or whatever, whatever. But mm-hmm. yeah. So, yeah. And no one to say State of Fear is but great art by any means. I mean, but it's not bad for what it is. It's is not bad for what, what it is. Okay. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. And I think it's really hard to do the great art, heavy message thing, you know. But like Camus tries, you know, some of the existentialists try, like Waiting for Godot. Okay. You know, it's basically like an example of what living an absurd life is, mm-hmm. but it's funny. <laughs> so again, we don't have any hard fast rules as usual. <laughs> no, we never have answers here. <laughs> if but- only art had an answer. <laughs> It was only it was quantifiable enough. I know. And then we then this would be a math podcast. <laughs> Stuart Lim would be a much happier man. Art is much closer to quantum mechanics than Newtonian physics. <laughs> I, I will take your word on that, <laughs> Mister. I ace my SAT. <laughs> Not quite. <laughs> so, um, I, we'll do our first uh, soundtrack. So after all that, uh, trying to figure out all about messages, I had to find a soundtrack that had no. We, this is a radio broadcast from the 1950s. No, <laughs> this is again where our current, our lack of current game knowledge is sort of. Uh, yeah, but I'm sure there's games that hit you over the head too heavily. Some, I, some but the point. problem is I haven't played a, a new game since. Who knows? What, I mean, <laughs> well, you my put, new games are 10 years old. You know, <laughs> I mean, you've played like Wii stuff. But yeah. you have, you've not dived in. I played like Fez. It that's yeah. what I knew. That's true. You've played games off of Steam. But yeah, those are but, not particularly... They're more puzzly games. Yeah, you haven't gotten to like, like dive deep into a story-based like, game. Like uh, Bioshock or something like that. Something yeah. I think I think actually one of those has... Probably, old, yeah. Things about religion and stuff. But I'm, anyway, so what I went with is there's this system you may have heard of, probably not, called the Sega Pico. Nope. Which was uh, basically... 
from what I understand, kind of like a leapfrog, kind of a kid laptop to do teaching games sort of stuff. Educational type. Yep. And so there's one remix on Overclock Remix from the system. From For all the parents who thought video games would just rot their kids' brains so they gave them something educational yes. instead. So this is from a game called Tales and the Picture Maker? Music Maker. Music Maker. I've got it, I've got it up here okay. on my screen. Um, it's remixed by Zircon. It's called Picolescence. Um, and it's kind of groovy. So um, enjoy. Be educated or else. <laughs> That was your foray into the Sega Pico. Very chill. Yes. Enjoyable. Yes. 
All right, now we'll go to a system. Uh, system, no, <laughs> the system is down. The system is down. <laughs> we'll now down. go to a, a part of the podcast we like to call our take on tales. All right, so this is if you have not listened to the podcast before, shame on you. But um, welcome, is, welcome. <laughs> I mean, hi. I'm so glad you could be here. <laughs> But we hope um, this is the part where we kind of talk all about different books, movies that we've done and that or that we've read, that we've ingested, ingested, uh, osmosed, um, and you know, kind of analyze them, suggest them to you. Stuff that has not been on Weekly Hijack, yes, our our sister podcast where we talk about Lost and other TV shows. Mm-hmm. So should I start this one, Tim? Yes, go all for right. it. So I recently read my first William Faulkner novel, Ooh. Um, The Sound and the Fury. Was so, it furious? It was something. Was it, it, was it soundful? <laughs> it sounds like, it seems like there's a Fast and the Furious sequel title on there somewhere. The Sound and the Fury. <laughs> anyway, continue. Um, I, this would be the opposite of the Fast and the Furious, <laughs> I'm pretty sure. Okay, this book is fascinating. Like, fascinating? I'm, I'm done. <laughs> wow. Just kicked into the next gear. Um, <laughs> we better put a break to that. Uh, <laughs> Stop. Get on with your review. Get on with. Get on with it. Okay. So this review is gonna be a lot less exciting than that was. Okay. So the sound and the fury is a strange book. It's an odd book. Here's the idea. Well, let me tell, explain it as I read it. There's four sections to this book, each in a different point of view. Okay. Um, the first point of view... Sounds very modern. It is very modern. It's like super postmodern. It's oh, a very okay. stream of consciousness. The first 70 pages I'm starting to read is very complicated because it's, it's written from the point of view, and you don't find this out right away because it's from the point of view of this guy, of a 30-year-old basically idiot. Like he has ver- like the mental capacity of like a five-year-old. Okay. Um, but it's written from his point of view. So, like, he doesn't really explain things very well. There's, like, very little detail described. It's just, like, this happened, this happened. And even harder is that his mind, when he sees, like, some image, he'll immediately drop into a memory of a different from some other time. So you're jumping through time back and forth in this point of view of this 30-year-old mentally handicapped person. Oh, wow. For the first 70 pages. So it is really rough going, okay? <laughs> Imagine. <laughs> I mean, once you get the... Fl- the amazing thing is, if you stick with it and you read long sections, you get the flow that there, there's a lot of things that help. There's basically about two or three plot lines going, really. Okay. It's very lost in that way. Uh-huh. Um, and you kind of... You start piecing together who's related to who and the... But it's very hard because there's no context at the beginning. Like, if it comes... This section comes second or third, you know who all the characters are and their relationships. You know nothing. You're just there. And it's fascinating because, it, at least for me, if you could have long sections of time... Like, I, I liked reading it, but it was like a mystery. It was like... And, and they do this... It turns the talogs briefly whenever it switches from one time period to another time period and then comes back. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, not the whole sections, and just the transition is in italics between. Okay, but it doesn't say like thirty years before. It just all kind of flows. Man, that'd be that would take a lot of some planning and coordination to to not completely lose your readers between sections. It, it, how, how did you, I'm really curious how you even piece all this together. You just start picking up on little things. Someone more because. At some point, I went on the like Wikipedia and tried to get a little context of who these people were because it just it's 
it's one of those books I think would once you have a sense, it's almost like once you've read it once, you can read it again with a lot more understanding. So I went and said, okay, help me understand who these people are. What helps between the, there's about three different time periods is that there's a different person in charge of them each time. So there's you, there's kind of these little symbols that help you figure out where you are. Okay. Um, and a lot of it revolves around his sis. His name's Benji. It revolves around his relationship with Caddy, his sister. Okay. So there's lots of images of her. And you can kind of tell when they're older and younger and stuff like that. So that's the whole first section. And the whole second section is with Quentin, which is his another one of his brothers. Um, but it's like 20 years, it's, uh, not 20 years, but it's substantially earlier. And that's written, Wikipedia and other places call him that he's kind of neurotic. But basically, his sister, Caddy, basically, she messed around, she got pregnant, she was married, she got married, she decided to get married before anyone found out she was pregnant with a different guy. And then she, that guy broke it off. Anyways, and Quentin's one of these, I guess, Southern people just has this real strict moral thing and one protect her sister, his sister, and like one protect all women and that she was defiled really, even though it was, Caddy was not assaulted, she was running around. But basically the whole day is him basically setting up to kill himself. Oh, wow. But he, his mind just kind of, he'll just flop into memories too. But he talks in this very educated, over-intellectualized way. And sometimes they mention one point almost like he starts, like his memories start breaking down in some ways. And they just kind of, there's like almost no punctuation. I mean, like the punctuation is gone in some places. And it just like the memories just start flowing together. Like it's, like it's so weighing on him so much, it's just kind of flowing into his head. Hmm. Uh-huh. So there's like, there's no set periods. It's just like, da 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 him remembering scenes from his life. And that's rough too. Wow. Okay. Uh-huh. Those are first those are the hardest two sections. Third section then goes to a day after the Benji section with the third brother, Jason, who's just a horrible man. Okay, I have to interrupt you real yeah. quick. Now, are are is there like an overarching story with all these sections, or is it more like a series of connected well, short see, this stories? Is, that, well, that was my biggest problem with it, besides it's just hard, is that I guess the idea was kind of the... Because I, I finished it, and was just like, the individual sections were really fascinating, but I didn't know what the purpose of the book was. As far as I can tell, it's basically just like this Compton family, that's the name of the family, was like a big Southern family. It's just kind of like their disintegration. It's like the Old South dying. Okay. You know, Faulkner is a Southern writer. I think it's that sort of like the Old South degenerating into okay. this chaos. Uh-huh. Because the last section then is not first person. The only one not first person is third person, but it largely follows around Dilsey, I believe that's her name, who's the head black servant. It's past, it's past slave times, but she still serves. Sure. Um, and she's kind of like the only one who's like holds the family together. Uh-huh. Um, and she goes to church that day and she helps take, and her son helps take care of Benji, her grandson. And she's just, she's just really old and beat up, but she's the only one that seems to be remotely grounded in this whole family. Hmm. And it's just about, and that's about, because Benji's like Good Friday, and then Saturday is Jason's day. Ben, Quentin died a couple years, a number of years before, and then her day was on Easter. And then that's the end of the book, kind of the end of that day. What do you mean by her day? Like, is each, like, like each, her section's a day. Oh, are each section, is each section a day? One day. One day. Oh, I mean, okay. and mass amounts of memories. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, huh. like, like, as a writer, I, reading the book was fascinating. And, and struggling to understand these things was really fun in some literary sort of way. I mean, you like uh, that sort of stuff. Yeah. But I, at the end, it just felt like I wanted something more to make it mean something. Like the individual sections were, and I don't know whether it was just so much 
living these people's shoes and that, you know, it was maybe more of an experiment for them. And again, inside a class who knows Faulkner, well, I've never read much Faulkner mm-hmm. and what kind of concerns he writes about and stuff. Maybe you could get some more. Basically, I get out from my brief looking around Wikipedia and stuff is sort of a, the disintegr- it's about the disintegration of this family and the old Southern traditions and that sort of post-reconstruction hmm. world. You know, kind of like how, you know, some British things are about the falling apart of, you know, the old... Like, the old empire. The old empire. You know, almost like um, Downton Abbey is basically about, okay, you yeah. know, I think I think it was kind of like that. The changing times. The gen- yeah, or just, yeah, they're all crazy. Except the problem is... Caddy is like the main character everyone revolves around, but she's not actually in any section. I mean, she's not her point of view because she's the one who sleeps and she runs away. And then her daughter ends up coming back to live. And Jason's section, the third section, is his like stealing all the money that's supposed to go to Caddy's daughter and all this stuff. He's just he's just very cynical, very money materialistic. And the writing style is so vastly different than even the other two. And you just really get into what this guy, he's just not a nice guy. Well, it sounds like Faulkner was at least very good at getting inside people's heads. Very good. So, okay, so I have this quiz for you, Tim. Okay. Okay, I, I was explaining to my sister how this reads. I found this little thing here. So oh. it's called Machine Translation or Faulkner. Okay, so um, <laughs> can you tell the pro- pros that won a Nobel Prize from the text that needs editing? Um, so each quote below has either been German uh, machine translated from German or the sample of William Faulkner's prose. Okay. Okay. So we'll do just a couple of these. But okay. most of the ones that are from Faulkner are largely from the either the Benji or the Quentin section. Okay. Of are, whatever. Are these all from the same book or are they from different? Uh, most of the ones I recognize were from that book. Okay. Uh, we'll just do a couple of these. You kind of get the sense of the language sometimes is almost impossible. Okay. So here's the first one. He would be sort of grand too, pulling in lonely state across the noon, rowing himself right out of noon, up the long bright air like a apothesis, mounting uh, into a drowsing infinity. So is that machine translated from German text or is that Faulkner? <laughs> it sounds more like a lyric or something. It doesn't sound like a, I'm, I'm trying to identify, like I, I think uh, if this is an actual sentence, I think the... Uh, trying to diagram this sentence would be a nightmare. <laughs> yeah. um, so just pick one. We'll see how, if you're right or not. I'll, I'll go with machine translation. Okay. Number two. If people could only change one another forever that way, merge like a flame swirling up for an instant, then blow cleanly out along the cool eternal dark. Okay, now this the previous sentence had a lot of commas. Yeah. You, couldn't, you people listening wouldn't know that. This sentence feels like it needs some commas. commas. Okay. Um, but I'm going to go with that's a Faulkner one. Okay. We don't have to do all 10 if we want, but let's do a few more just so we can. Okay. Before my soul, like a curtain, pulled itself away, and the scene of the, in- of the infinite life transforms before me into the abyss of the eternally open grave. Uh, that sounds like a Faulkner thing. <laughs> That's like that. That sounds close enough to make actual sense. Yeah. I, believe, I believe in that one. Okay. Number four. I will am my father's progen- progenitive. Yeah. I invited him, created him. Wait. I'm going to start the sentence again. There's no periods in this. Okay. I will am my father's progenitive. I invented him, created I him. Say it to him. It will not be for he will say I was not. And then you and I since philo progenitive. Wow. <laughs> I, I have no idea, but I feel like a machine would actually be more grammatically correct than that mess was. So <laughs> okay. I'm going to go with Faulkner. Okay, let's do one more. Number five. Okay. 
It was a shadow that lay in every beautiful weather once under a tree and fluctuated like the branches in the wind. Um, <laughs> I'm really not sure. I'm, I have no idea how I'm doing in this so far. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure either, actually. It's been long enough. I feel like this one could go either way, but because I've said Faulkner for the last several, I'm going to go with Machine on that one. All right. So we'll see. I think I got like 80% of the time. Okay. Okay, I missed, I missed the first one. Which was from The Sound of the Fury. And I'll read that sentence again. This is not, so you know, this is, uh, oh, this is the machine, Trent. No, I said this was machine. It's actually an f- actual Faulkner yeah. quote. So we'll see if I can make sense of this. He would be sort of grand too, pulling in lonely state across the noon, rowing himself right out of noon, up the long bright air like an apotheosis, mounting into a drowsing infinity. I believe that's describing a, a rower. At that point. Someone rowing a boat. Yeah. Okay, this is mostly from the Quentin wow. section. Quentin, speak, I mean, his mind starts working these words that are almost not sentences to kind of, uh, I guess, to show his, his neurosis. Okay, interesting. Okay, well, the second one I got right, that is Faulkner. Faulkner. If people could only change one another forever, that way <laughs> merge like a flame swirling up for an instant then blow cleanly out along the cool eternal dark yep good job good job with the i don't know here. i don't remember what my reasoning there was but the next one was actually machine translated i got wrong so i'm not gonna well that. people well people might wonder what it was again but that one was the before my soul like a curtain pulled itself away and the scene of infinite life transforms before me into the abyss of the eternally open grave uh, that is translated from... Some German text from Goth. Yeah, okay. Number four, I got that right. That was Faulkner. Yep, the progenitive one. The progenitive one. I'm not going to say that one again. Yeah, I remember that scene. That scene was very complicated. I'm, I imagine. <laughs> the one... Okay, and then the one that I really wasn't sure about was... Um, I said machine translation, and it was. Nice. And that's the... It was so, a shadow that... So anyways, those are the worst kind of sections of it, but sometimes you just like... You can tell, especially in the Quentin part... Sometimes it's almost not so much the meaning as the the sound of the meaning, or the or at least I, I couldn't make heads or tails sometimes of what it would mean exactly, but almost the shadow of the meaning. <laughs> okay, so anyway, yeah, it sounds so, like a very challenging read. So very interesting book. I'm glad to have read it. I'm not sure I would recommend it to many people unless you are unless you're very literary. One, it really is more of an ex, more for me was more of a delving in, seeing what a person can do delving that deep into people's point of view and stuff. Uh-huh. I mean, it's certainly very postmodern in that sense. Right. Would you read more Faulkner? If <sighs> Apparently this Compton family, he even has like a, there's somewhere else like a fifth part that kind of kind of says what happened to all of them and everything. Because he, he has this fake county that he writes out all the time that he peoples with all kinds of people. And oh, I guess wow. some of these characters show up in other books. Um, and stuff like that. It's like a literary prairie home companion. Yeah, yeah, very much. Huh. So part of me would like to, uh, not you know, for a while, but like I've always been curious what the Absalom, O Absalom book is about. Hmm. Um, see, from what I understand, this one's different than even his other ones in some ways. Oh. I don't think they're all this. Cerebral? Yeah. Okay. I could be wrong on that again, but he certainly knows how to change his style. I mean, there three. there's four very different styles. Hmm. Um, in this book. Um, and you won a Nobel Prize for this book. Okay. So interesting. Anyway, anyway so that's my that was my uh my English reading for the year. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> but it was one of those books that like I'd have an hour, I'm like, I'm gonna sit down and read this because you can't read for less than that and make any sense of it. <laughs> uh-huh. Not well. Sure. But 
Well, I'm going to go on the other end of the... <laughs> That's probably a good thing. ...literary pools. Because <laughs> I didn't have anything real exciting or anything I was real invested in yeah. that I've read or seen lately. So I thought I might just pick a few highlights from my occasional viewing habits on Netflix. Again, to go completely on the other end Man, of uh, the that's, no one. Scale. We don't need to be on the Faulkner end this whole time. <laughs> it's a little de- Some of those scenes were a little depressing after a while. I was like, uh, Oh, I can imagine. Well, have you ever heard of a movie called Big Trouble in Little China? I have, I believe. Or you mentioned it, maybe, is why I heard it. Oh, maybe that's where... This is a... It's sort of a cult classic from the 80s, I think. I had seen... My roommate had watched it a bit while I was in school, but it was some day I was busy doing homework, and I, I was just kind of in and out, and it's like, man, this thing is kind of kind of crazy. Oh, do you, you might mention it when we watched uh, Kung Fury. Oh, yeah. I probably brought it up then, yeah. Well, because it's a... Um, I'm not even sure what to qualify. I mean, it it has it has martial arts in it. We're having trouble describing our our choices today. <laughs> it has martial arts in it, but it also has like a lot of this fantasy type stuff. I get it's from like a time when like China was still kind of considered this you know exotic in yeah. a sense, and it brings in a lot of like exotic mythology. But I use the term loosely because yeah. I I have no idea if any of what they talked about is actually <laughs> based in any Chinese mythology. Yeah. But uh, Kurt Russell is the white male protagonist, basically. Yeah. And he, he's this kind of redneck truck driver, basically, that uh, has a friend in Chinatown in San Francisco. And he and his friend, his Chinese friend, get involved in, at first is just kind of a, a gang war. Well, they're trying to they're trying to save his friend's girlfriend who gets kidnapped by basically this prostitution ring. On their way to try to save her, they get roped into this street fight between these two Chinese gangs, which then all of a sudden gets interrupted when these I don't know what they are exactly, the monks. No, they're not gods because they serve like this ancient crime lord that <laughs> has immortality and yet, but he was not allowed to inhabit a, a human body i'm no. not sure what he was actually inhabiting but apparently Interesting. so anyway the long and short of it <laughs> the long and short of it is so they get dragged into the the seedy chinatown underground which is like you know like lots of trips through sewers but then okay. like um, there's a secret underground sort of like temple of doom if okay. if instead of going inside the the castle there and you know you have that big evil temple yeah. except in this case it's full of like ornate chinese wealth and okay. stuff and that's what this guy has inside with occasional monsters and dungeons uh, mixed in with all bizarre. this stuff it is very bizarre but here's the thing that was most confusing about this whole deal I wasn't sure what to make of the movie for a long time. I was like, is this like a campy thing that you would see on Mystery Science Theater? But it, it, the cinematography is actually real. Like, they put a lot of money into this thing, and it actually looked, it looks pretty cool. <laughs> and that's, but, I, but at the same time, I, I could not tell if I was supposed to take this seriously or not. And, it, and, and so I did some reading, and it is, it turns out it is supposed to be sort of a, action fantasy comedy it is it is partly supposed to be a comedy but after having watching some of the you know rough tracks and things i've seen and because it's more dated yeah i i I wasn't even sure how i was supposed to read it i mean (laughs) there are some moments that you know do play out as very comical like the the kurt russell character is supposedly you know the main protagonist but he's so ridiculous in his in his gung-ho-ness and all this sort of stuff and he's clearly in over his head whereas like (laughs) 
all the actual Asian people are way better at fighting yeah. and all this, you know, they're actually doing the martial arts type stuff. And so theme of the night is art. We can't quite figure out what it's supposed to be doing. <laughs> I guess this might've been better for the taste episode, but, <laughs> but I think if you know that going into it, right. instead of being confused, yeah. like I was, I think you could actually have a pretty good time with it. Yeah. Like I said, really, really cool. Like looks, I mean, it, it looks very, very eighties. Yeah. Despite all the, oriental trappings yeah. and stuff it, it, just some of the special effects and like they do lots of like you know lightning bolts out of the fingers and and then there's some other like one of the bad guys for some reason his death scene he gets really mad at the good guys for killing his master and he gets so mad like his head literally like balloons and Weird. then and then blows up <laughs> Bizarre. I felt like it was like referencing some form of Chinese movies that I'm not familiar with, <laughs> or like some sort of Chinese because there are some like creature horror type yeah. elements to it that because I just don't know the genre yeah. very well, I was just massively confused by. <laughs> so that's that's an interesting find on uh, on Netflix, but I guess it is kind of a cult classic, huh? I can kind of tell why. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And I, I just I thought I'd pick on, pick on a couple movies that, yeah. that I saw. And I've watched on Netflix over recent months. Um, I finally watched the first RoboCop. Have you ever seen that? You know what? I've never actually watched the first old RoboCop. I'm I don't sure. know that it's really worth it. <laughs> <laughs> well, and when I was watching this, I was like, this is, the outfit is really cool. But I, I felt like there's a lot of gratuitous stuff in this movie that, I mean. Oh, I have heard of that. Yeah. It, it's, it is an R movie and it deserves its R rating. And, but, and I kept wondering, why is this, why is there so much blood? Why are they throwing around F-bombs when they don't need to? I mean, like, it, I, I couldn't figure out why it was, like, so ultra-violent. And then I realized, when I looked it up, it's by the same director that did Starship Troopers. Oh, okay. That that makes more sense. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't it doesn't excuse it, but apparently yeah. it's part of that guy's style. Like, <laughs> I don't understand why. I mean, because uh -huh. I, I mean, I, I remember when it was came out. I mean, I think they made action figures for it. And I think yeah. it was one of these movies that came out around that time, kind of like Terminator, where people were like, "These are really violent movies. You shouldn't be making toys for them." Yeah. But I mean, the RoboCop outfit is pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, and that's why I kept thinking, it's like, there's a good PG-13 that doesn't need the, some of this other stuff. Yeah. Um, huh. And I think it had some of the same sort of like playing with media expectations. Like, you remember in, in Starship Troopers, there's some like, and I guess propaganda, but like it plays with like the media perceptions oh, okay. of what's going on. Yeah. And they do the same sorts of things in, in this one. I mean, there's some interesting ideas in it, but it's surrounded by... What's really just a dumb, fun, you know, action movie, and there's yeah. there there's some cool action bits in it. I yeah. just I felt like the gratuitous stuff was gratuitous. gratuitous. <laughs> yeah, see episode forty something. Yeah, <laughs> not that long ago. And then the third one, what was the other? Oh, Patriot Games. Oh uh, yeah, which is the only Jack Ryan movie I hadn't seen yet. Um, Have you seen that? that? Because my first one was Clear and Present Danger, which we watched like constantly. Yeah, we that, loved that one. Yeah, that's the other Harrison Ford one, which I think that one's better. Um, this one actually came first, but I think it's—I don't think it's aged as well as Clear and Present yeah. Danger has. I mean, it's—it's it's not a bad movie. I mean, this one is—it's also rated R, but this one felt felt like it could have been PG thirteen. Okay, yeah. I don't—I don't even remember why it's R. There must have been an F bomb thrown somewhere. Yeah. I mean, and it's it's not bad. It's yeah. just like it's nothing. You know, if you've seen the other Jack Ryan movies, this one doesn't really have much new to okay. offer. Yeah, I think *Clear and Present Danger* is actually the only Jack Ryan movie I've seen all the way through. Oh, really? I mean, I haven't seen the new one. Have you seen the new one? Uh, yes. Yeah, I haven't seen that. Well, one. there's been two. The two? 
Yeah, there was one a few years ago with Ben Affleck. I think. Oh, I I might have seen that one actually. Now that you mentioned that, yeah, and I was thinking the I was thinking the Star Trek guy. Yeah, Chris Pine. I've yeah. not seen that one. That one was fun. That one was a lot of fun. Which it's, it's funny. I don't think it, that one is even based off a actual. Tom Clancy's oh, book. They just made a Yeah, but, but they still had all the trappings. See, Clear for the well. Danger, it came out at some time where like we watched it a lot and then like we took a train trip and it played and we took a plane trip and it, it was like it was on everywhere. <laughs> and we loved it. And I we still do this day in our family, we'll say stuff like, I don't dance to the two step, or uh <laughs> or we'll still say something he's the Latin Jack Ryan. Yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> it's just absurd. I, I the first time I saw I saw a scene of that, they should we, we watched a scene of that in one of my editing classes in, in film school because it has that one scene where he's on the computer and then the the guy he's investigating comes in to use like the office that's oh, yeah, like right yeah. across from him. And it's a great example of showing showing simultaneous action. Okay. Because they're both in their own offices like trying to get this thing, you know, and it's going on at the same time. And it's and it's really paced really well. But then I got me it's like, oh I gotta go watch the movie now. Nice. But oh. I would say I would say that one's better than Patriot Games. Okay. I mean yeah. again, not bad. Yeah. But of the three uh, of the Is three, one with the Irish Yes. Okay, I have seen parts of it. Then, at least. and Sean Bean's a bad guy. Okay, that's one of the ones where he's a bad guy. He dies. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which Sean Bean doesn't actually get killed in every movie, but it's often enough that it's yeah. funny. <laughs> <laughs> but so yeah, cool. there's there's nice. three movies, and of the th- of the three, if you're if you're looking for the most interesting experience, I, I'd have to go with Big Trouble in Little China. No, I, that, I, that would sound like fun. <laughs> yeah. Let me just redeem uh, the Faulkner real quick. With before that, I had read. Um, a Wizard of Earthsea. And just if you want to, I will do my super short, super good, like classic fantasy sort of stuff. Like the language is great and it's it's not very long. It just it's really neat. Would um, you would you want to read any more Earthsea books? I think I would. I, I it was it was written in such a style that I'm not sure I would want to follow it right up. Because it's, uh, it's not a book, it's not like a fantasy that's plot driven in the sense that like you have to turn pages. Okay. But it's a very beautiful book and it I don't know. It does a really nice thing with language and building this world and this character and, and the magic system very much about the true names of things. Okay. Um, and it's really fascinating. I, I, everyone always kind of rank that as one of the you know one of those fancy books up there with Tolkien and stuff. And it certainly is written very very well. I mean, it's it's certainly literary fantasy. Cool. And it, it was certainly worth reading. I, I I'd be interested in reading more Ursula Gwynn. I think that was the first book I read of hers. I'm like. Yeah, I'd be. I'd read more of this. Yeah, since so. you liked it, this definitely sounds like something I'd like to yeah. check out sometime. It's certainly much slower paced than like modern fantasy tends mm. to be. Slower That's, than Brandon Sanderson, then. Yeah, San- Sanderson tries to make things move. He, he's very good at pacing, mm-hmm. and this is much more leisure. It's a little more mythic, you know, a little more uh, not not quite Silmarillion, not not that old <laughs> and mythic, but you know, more more you know more like a Hobbit. Yeah. Uh, a Hobbit, a uh, Lord of the Rings style. Okay. You know, we're just sort of... A little more old-fashioned. Old, Yeah, it is very old-fashioned. As opposed sense. to, like... As opposed to, like, a, a, a movie version of, you know... Yeah, a mo- yeah, modern sort of sensibility. Yeah. Okay. All right, well, we better wrap this yeah, up. Yeah, that's a long one, but I want to throw that into counterbalance my, my Falcon. <laughs> so... All right, um, I guess first we'll do uh, contact info. Uh, like we said earlier, leave us a comment at dearoldtrainsofthought.blogspot.com. Uh, let us know if there's a Netflix movie, a movie on Netflix that you think uh, we should check out. And Maybe we should sometime like take someone's request and like do a hijack on that. Oh, that could be kind of fun. Yeah, find out something that you want us to talk about, and yeah. uh, we'll do it. And 
Maybe we'll get a Patreon and we'll like have people pay us to do stuff. And- <laughs> there we go. Ha <laughs> <laughs> We'll make millions of yeah. cents. Uh, <laughs> a few dollars. A few least. dollars at least. Oh, you can visit us on our YouTube channel. Oh, we yes. see all our different stuff. Don't forget to check out the Weekly Hijack. It's still on. We just finished season one of Lost. Yes. It might be a little pause before two because I know I'll be gone for two. Uh, depends on when this episode comes out. Yeah. But. And uh, email us at drilltrains at gmail.com. That's right. We check it occasionally. <laughs> you never know. All right. So um, I hear like bulldozers or something coming. Oh. Uh, this, and the tone of this whole force is just changing drastically. Yeah, they seem to be very a lot of gloom and doom around. Yeah, so, so well, they did say this is the last rainforest. So oh, there's never going to be another rainforest after this one, apparently. Yeah, yeah. Oh, too bad. Okay, well, why don't we go out with some music? Some good music, at least. All right, I, like Nick, I didn't really have. I don't have a real great knowledge of current games. I'm sure there are some that probably get to have a real preachy message in there. But since I'm not familiar with those, instead I went with Kingdom Hearts. Which we never heard that before, so <laughs> it's it's been a little while. I don't know. Do Kingdom, Kingdom Hearts, Hearts is, is great music. I, mean, I don't do it as often as Final Fantasy VI, and no. sometimes you know it does get a little on the nose. Uh, it has a lot of you know, my friends are my power. <laughs> yeah, it is very, it is very that yes. that type of stuff. But it also has like for a game that has Disney characters in it, there's a surprising amount of undertones about existence and non-existence. And the DS game Recoded is this really insane <laughs> mix of like Inception Matrix stuff. <laughs> but but and, we'll, then, and then Friends. And yes. But tr- then turn that frown upside down. This ship runs on happy faces. Yes, basically. So anywho, uh, but this song is called Trinity and it is remixed by... Superio, I guess is how you say the name. Um, he's a newcomer at the time. This is actually just came out a few months ago. And I think it's a, a, a nice trance remix of the song Dearly Beloved. So, right. Well, let's uh, enjoy it. move on out of here then. All right. Thanks for listening. Well, this is Nick. And this is Tim. Adios. Bye.